All right. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Muslim Bitcoiner podcast. My name is Abdullah, and today I have a special guest. We have Bashar Humaid. So Bashar Humaid is going to be talking to us today about the Freedom Machine project, and we'll also be talking about energy systems as well as Islamic economics, and we're also going to be talking about the relationship between Bitcoin and how that relates to Islamic economics as well. So just to introduce Bashar, he's he's been working for eight years as a journalist at DW, which is Germany's international broadcaster, and as a researcher specialized in energy at the Emirates Center for Strategic Studies and Research. Bashar Humaid decided with the help of friends and relatives to start a nonprofit that developed a system called the Freedom Machine, which combines renewable solar energy production with urban farming on rooftops. Later, he co-founded the first organic food retailer of Jordan named Yanboot. And currently, he's writing his PhD on renewables and decentralized and decentralization of political systems at the Technical University of Darmstadt. So, Bashar, just to kind of get started with this, could you tell us a little bit about what the Freedom Machine is and how you got started uh, do, doing this project? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, the Freedom Machine is now more like an umbrella concept or title for the things I'm doing right now. Originally, it's a project, as you mentioned, for producing food, energy, water on rooftops of uh, Middle East, Middle Eastern homes, which are you know, usually flat homes. So they have flat, flat rooftops. And so the project was to utilize this uh, space, which is underutilized, and make a greenhouse there, a special modified greenhouse that's uh, suitable for the rooftops. And that uh, serves um, multiple purposes. So you can use it to uh, grow organically, aquaponically, hydroponically, uh, without using soil or with using soil. It has uh, many ways of uh, food production. <coughs> so, <coughs> and then you have the, the unit as a energy uh, uh, that has an energy producing component so <clears throat> you can uh, use it in, in the summer for example to reduce the energy that you need in the house and the flat and the flat in the building because it's uh, it, it will uh, reduce the heat that uh, sunshine that hits the roof and in the winter which is the most uh, <coughs> use of uh, of it uh, which is uh, it's modified into a greenhouse. It's not a shading house anymore. In the in the winter comes the greenhouse, and because we have a lot of sun, even in the cold winters uh, of Jordan, for example, <coughs> and the greenhouse gets a little bit more hot than we we need for the plants. <coughs> so we can um, suck out this extra heat and pump it into the uh, into the building and this uh, was um, cutting the cost for the heating by about uh, 50 percent which is uh, actually very good mm. so and this is the uh, this is the freedom machine concept 
in its original form. <clears throat> that's, that's yeah, yeah. That's 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 really cool. I guess I also wanted to ask, like, uh, what made you decide to kind of pursue this project? Do you think there's a a sort of problem, I guess, in the Middle East with, you know, people not having their own energy systems, or they might be relying on centralized energy systems? What motivated you to start this? Yeah, the energy is not uh, available in the Middle East, uh, as one may uh, think. Uh, in, uh, like it's not abundant everywhere. In Jordan, you have lack of energy. Uh, I mean, conventional energy like uh, oil. And uh, while we have a concentration of energy production, for example, in neighboring countries like Iraq or Saudi Arabia, yeah. So and uh, uh, in Jordan. Energy is, is something that people uh, pay a lot for. So it was making sense uh, for me to have started on my own uh, rooftop. And it was making sense to, to have such a project uh, merely for, you know, cutting the cost of uh, the bills of uh, you know, heating and, and cooling. And also having some fresh food from the rooftop, which is very nice. We had also fish, you know, grow fish there on the rooftop and have a fresh fish, yeah. Because the aquaponic system that we used, with, you know, it's, it combines the fish uh, with the plant production. So you have like a symbiosis between the two systems. And yeah, it's actually very, very nice. And uh, this uh, project uh, I had uh, in my mind uh, and uh, while I was working as a environment and energy researcher in the Emirates Center for Strategic Studies. I had I had this idea in my mind and I actually left my job to do it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So in 2011 I I left my job in the in Abu Dhabi and I was you know, totally into you know doing stuff on rooftops and agriculture and I changed uh, the the way I lived for before as a as an employee or someone who's just sitting in front of the computer, mm -hmm. yeah. it was a very very transformative experience, and um, it led me to um, uh, to understand more about the economy, about the uh, how to do business, etc. And uh, I mean, this was something important for me. Yeah. Okay, like, so would you say that, like, in a place like Jordan, that they have uh, energy systems that tend to be centralized and concentrated? And, do you, like, what are the consequences of that, if, if that is the case in, in the Middle East or in a place like Jordan? Yeah, the consequences, unfortunately, are very negative. Like, well, one of them is uh, that we have in Jordan a very... Um, bad uh, deal with Israel that uh, we get uh, gas uh, from Israel for a very high price and though the parliament and the community is against this uh, there were a lot of demonstrations and resolutions by the parliament to stop this uh, deal nevertheless uh, the government uh, just did it and it was a secret deal and they and they just went with it went to, with Israel to do it and till now we get the gas from there which is actually you know actually 
a crime and just have to do that now in this situation. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, it's uh, very important to to have energy independence and uh, not only on the national level, but also on the personal level. And this is something that people in Jordan understand very well. And that's why Jordanians started very early to use uh, renewable energy and uh, they adopted uh, like um, I know maybe in the Bitcoin world it's not so popular but the electric car in Jordan is something that people adopted because of a need you know and the need to cut uh, energy costs and because many of them use uh, solar energy so they have extra uh, extra energy from their rooftops so they they utilize it for the for their cars and and the perception is that you know renewable energy comes only with, like is only successful with uh, uh, subsidies but in jordan we don't have subsidies we have taxes on renewable <laughs> energy <laughs> the government so that people are using electric cars and electric uh, you know renewable energy to to produce electricity and they thought, okay, well, we can tax this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tax. So, so I have a little bit different approach or idea about renewable energy and how it relates to decentralization and to to freedom. I think it's uh, it's actually uh, in our context uh, more uh, a decentralizing factor and and something that we need to uh, to. Uh, to gain our freedom, or our real freedom, not just a political freedom, we have to we have we have to have infrastructures that support our freedom, uh, and and uh, this infrastructural element is is like energy is vital is very very important for any you know freedom movement. Yeah, you know, I saw your TED talk where you were talking about like the freedom machine and kind of like the whole philosophy around it. How would you kind of curious to see like what is kind of the general perception of whenever you talk to like Jordanians or other Arabs about about this idea? Like do they do they tend to kind of shut you off whenever you talk about about this kind of stuff or are they do they seem to be open to it? No, they are they are open to it. People people understand it and uh, they they understand the concept and unfortunately the adoption is not so fast, but uh, I mean People have now better ideas to utilize their rooftops, and mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, you know the uh, the solar cells, mm-hmm. it's, which is good. I I uh, I also I'm now in the process of um, modifying the system so that also we can use renewable uh, like to use the solar panels with it. So yeah, I mean. Uh, People, people understand that. I recently um, I had a coworker who was from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I called him because I need, needed to to transport some uh, some panels, some solar panels here in Germany. And he, uh, I asked him, do you, you know what what we are doing? He, and he he comes from a Afghan village, like very and still doesn't know about Germany and about many things. And he said, no, of course, we have this in our uh, village. Since years, we have the uh, solar energy in our village in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Because they get it, you know, because it's practical. Uh, they get it and they put it on the rooftop and then they have electricity. 
there is no there is no central uh, energy uh, distributor there. Yeah. Imagine that uh, that you know the Arab governments may not look favorably on something like renewable energy and using solar panels because then you have people that are not reliant on a you know like public energy in infrastructure they're just kind of self-reliant on their own energy systems do you think do you think there's there's some pushback from from governments on on this on this kind of idea yeah actually in saudi arabia a couple of years ago more like maybe 10 years ago it was uh, forbidden to uh, install renewable energy or solar. Oh. but now oh, wow. they changed now i mean Saudi Arabia has a lot of sun also, and uh, you know they decided, uh, I don't know, maybe eight years ago that they they want to be uh, not only oil uh, exporters but also energy exporters. So they were uh, investing heavily in renewable energy. But the thing is that uh, renewable energy can be done centrally or it can be decentralized. And, uh, this is uh, and the decentralizing. Uh, part of it is is very strong yeah so it's not like uh, anyone can uh, have his own um, nuclear reactor or yeah. his oil well or something but everyone actually can have his uh, own uh, you know solar uh, system or, or wind uh, system so uh, they are investing it but um, you know governments sometimes do things or encourage things that don't benefit them. Uh, just sometimes they they just go with the with the, with the flow or the technological uh, advancements. And most of the countries, you know, uh, introduce internet, though they afterwards discovered that the internet is not is not the best thing that they could have. Or they lost, you know, their, their monopoly on on the narrative, etc. So. Uh, and nevertheless, I mean, Jordan also, uh, you know, encouraged in the beginning the introduction of renewable energy, but uh, in, in, like in, they just cut cut some taxes on it. Mm. But uh, later they introduced new taxes on it. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think people, um, you know, in in Saudi Arabia and even in Jordan, they. The government tends to have, you know, big uh, projects for renewable energy, centralized, uh, like use the renewable energy in the same way that uh, the centralized uh, uh, energy systems were, were used through the central grid and big, uh, huge um, reactors or solar uh, facilities. But uh, this actually now the, the technology itself now the implementation of this way of uh, of management of renewable energy proves to be not so efficient and not so good because uh, you know you, you need this decentralization in the renew in, in the renewable energy sector also to stabilize the, the grid. Right. Yeah. So the technology of renewable energy is by itself uh, its nature is decentralized so maybe it would with the time you know go to this direction naturally without us you know um, as individuals uh, shaping this uh, sector very actively 
but nevertheless, our if we understand that it uh, the importance of decentralization and the importance of energy independence on a personal level, uh, we would be uh, a factor for for accelerating the the decentralization process in the sector. Yeah, and it does seem like that's kind of a path for, uh, uh, I guess, advancing technology and advancing civilization, especially yeah. in the in the Middle East when you have kind of kind of have a decentralized system of energy where people are more self-sufficient and self-reliant instead of being reliant on a centralized entity or being reliant on the government for that. So that's really, really, yeah, that's great. Great to hear that. Like it's, it definitely kind of, it seems like it lends itself more de to decentralization rather than centralization. So I guess this kind of similar topic, I wanted to kind of shift focus to talk about Bitcoin and I know when you first reached out reached out to me, it was because I was posting Bitcoin on on Twitter. I, I kind of wanted to get your, I guess, perspective and your journey and how you got into Bitcoin and what what made you interested in it. Yeah, well, I was the perfect candidate for Bitcoin, but because I um, <laughs> since two thousand eight, I understood the Austrian economics and uh, started, you know, uh, saving uh, in gold. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, and so that was a, a very, uh, you know, transformative for me to understand what's going on and uh, in the financial system. <clears throat> but I was constantly hearing about Bitcoin from the wrong people, you know, As, uh, <laughs> people who just wanted to uh, get rich fast and uh, or. Or you know, or they were looking for drugs and buying uh, things in the illegal things on the internet. So I, I was not interested in, in that actually. So my my thought was um, my idea was, yeah, you know, this is a technology or computer and stuff in this uh, area tend to change very fast. So no one. You know, uh, introduced me in the right way to the to the to this idea, and I was back then um, very concentrated on you know business and uh, in, uh, in, in in this freedom machine and agriculture, and it was in a different world that uh, where technology was uh, somehow uh, not uh, something very important. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I yeah. Yeah, I imagine when you first found out about Bitcoin, I guess and may, maybe, you know, lear learning about its proof of work, I'm sure it in intrigued you and and how, you know, Bitcoin requires energy because I'm sure there's quite a link there between the what you're trying to achieve and what Bitcoin already comes prepackaged with. Yeah, it was like a oh my god moment. How <laughs> did I miss that one? Because, as I told you, I, I was like reading Grand Paul and Hayek and, and everything. Oh, wow. So, um, like uh, since 2008, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and uh, this link, yeah, I think a lot of people still still are this uh, area, you know, they they and there's a still link between Bitcoin and their their world, their intellectual world. Is not is not uh, present. So, yeah, 
learned about Bitcoin in uh, here in Germany through the you know anti-lockdown movement actually, yeah. and the things that happened in Canada, etc. And this like what? Why are they talking about Bitcoin? Right? <laughs> you know? so, yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm not I'm not a early actor, but uh, we're still in early stages. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 kind of like, I guess, had had a different, I guess, way to approaching Bitcoin because you know, I just I started learning about Bitcoin and then I didn't know that I didn't really know anything about economics, and that's when I started reading Austrian economics. It was only, and I've only really started actually looking to Bitcoin seriously since you know, like 2020, and uh, I've been you know consuming a lot of Austrian economics, and I definitely kind of kind of see that you know like if, if you're into austrian economics before it's i feel like it would be a lot easier to kind of understand or get bitcoin but for me in my case i, I learned about austrian economics until after i found out about bitcoin so that's, that's definitely kind of interesting you've already i guess have, have learned about austrian economics what made you decide to learn about austrian economics because it's not something that especially like even even arabs don't really care about that that school of ec economics what made you interested in that well i am um, i was always interested in economics i had the, the some economy uh, courses in my study here in germany <clears throat> i was um i actually without knowing that there is an alternative i uh, uh, to keynesian economics i had my problems with with, uh, with my professors who were <laughs> yeah so actually i dropped economy uh, economy from my study because i i was not i found that it's, the way they are teaching it didn't make sense for me so i dropped it and back then i did not really know in 2002 or 2001 i didn't know what the problem is i mean keynesianism uh, german uh, uh, economic or uh, economy uh, economics faculties is like the main thing mm -hmm. in what the universities universities I was here in, in in Germany this was like the main thing there was no no alternative was you know presented for for students and even when I see now the <laughs> curricula till now it's didn't change actually this is like a, it's presented as facts, and King's uh, books are are the standard. Yeah. So, yeah. so I had my problems with this uh, school of thought, and I just dropped it and, and concentrated on my political and Islamic studies. So, um, in two thousand eight, I, I I was more introduced into Hayek and into alternatives and. And so it was very interesting, you know, the, these uh, crises always show show the cracks, you know, in the system and where are the problems. So you start thinking, okay, maybe there's someone else who wrote about it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I find that especially a lot of Muslims kind of readily accept like whatever the default mainstream economic thinking is. And it's just, you know, you you would almost think that it was like a part of 
Islamic way of looking at economics, you would think that, you know, like you open up any any Islamic economics textbooks, well, at least for the few that I've opened up, I mean, you, you read and it's just like, wow, this is just basically like uh, your standard Keynesian economic textbook where they, you know, justify a lot of interventionist policies and money money expansion and, you know, they actually think or assert that the central bank actually stabilizes the economy and tries to achieve full employment. I guess, have you, have you also noticed that, I guess, within Islamic economics, do you, do you, do you see that as, as more Keynesian or do you see that as its own thing? What's been your experience learning about that from your, from your Austrian way of thinking, I guess? Well, actually before that, before I got introduced to Austrian thinking, um, I was, uh, aware from uh, what I was reading in Islamic studies, uh, Islamic law, that, you know, gold should be the standard. So, and there was, even here in Europe, there was a movement for from Spanish Muslims who were trying to reintroduce the gold dinar. But, yeah, the gold, the gold dinar movement, yeah. Yeah, and I, I uh, was a little bit exposed to this movement before, so... Uh, actually, when you think about it, we as Muslims, we uh, it's a natural thing that we diffuse uh, fiat uh, currencies and central banks. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, yeah, actually, you know, most Muslims are are critical of you know taking loans uh, from uh, with uh, interest, and uh, and they know there is a problem. We know it because you know it's. It's a very important economic uh, part of Islam. is very important. Uh, you know, riba is, is forbidden, and Islam comes. Of, uh, I mean, the the Islam itself is a, is a religion of um, traders, and mm -hmm. they know about uh, trade and and how it should be done in the right way. There is a lot. There is a lot of uh, of tradition in. Of um, of trading and, and uh, putting codes and uh, laws for for proper trading and doing economics. So the problem is, the, you know, that the modern state and uh, the modern thinkers of Islam they introduced a lot of garbage into our <laughs> to our thinking. You know, nationalism is one one thing. Uh, modern economic theory is another thing this is uh, very toxic these are very toxic ideas that, you know, infiltrate our thinking and uh, you know change the, the the original rules in a, in a very sub in a very um, subtle way and yeah yeah and you find that even like a lot of muslims tend to be like like, like you said all Muslims kind of recognize that there's a problem within the current financial system. And then, you know, Muslims in general don't take out interest-bearing loans. Or if they do, they recognize that they're, like, doing something wrong. So there's there's that kind of awareness already. But, you know, when, when presented with an alternative, they, they tend to kind of shut that down or they don't really bother with thinking of alternatives. And even, you know, like, even if you try to present, like, going back to a gold standard, they don't really take any steps to do anything about it. It's like, yeah, we should go back to a gold standard and basically the end of the conversation. But I do agree with your other comment about, you know, modern, modern, it's uh, 
Muslim economists tend to kind of throw in a lot of this garbage that they've gotten from Western economic thinking, especially of the Keynesian variety. And, you know, you read a lot of like some of the some of the scholars of the past that have written about Islamic economics. Uh, you know, there there isn't a lot because economics is a very like new field relative to other uh, other other humanities and other sub subjects related to it. But you find mm -hmm. that they, they, they like uh, kind of approach at it from a first principles perspective where like they're not trying to like, you know, model the economy and then like trying to see whether their their models fits reality or whatever. They actually like build it from the ground up of like looking at the economy at the individual level and find that's completely in contrast to what most modern Islamic economics textbooks teach. But mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a disaster. You know, we... Mm. Islamic uh, thought, uh, you know, changed um, in, in in very uh, different ways in the in, in our era, or or in like the, let's say in the last one hundred twenty years, you know, since the fall of uh, Ottoman uh, Empire. So, yeah, the problem is like the wave of, for example, leftism uh, left. Uh, it marks on Islamic thought. Um, people started to, you know, reconcile Islam with the with the left uh, leftist uh, ideas, so uh, Marxist ideas. Uh, state or fascism also left its mark, you know, on Islamic thought. People uh, started to, you know, reinterpret uh, Islam in a you know nationalistic way and you know, statist way. Um, and the, the core values of Islam uh, were, uh, you know, abandoned, you know, because the, the, the reference is, is, is Western or Eastern. It's not the, it's not Islam. It's not the, the core writings of Islam. So all these elements, you know, that we know about Islam, is, as I told you, in, or as you know, Islam is a, was founded by by uh, uh, a prophet who was uh, uh, an active uh, trader, you know, mm -hmm. his wife. These are the first Muslims, you know. You, you you could even say that they were they were capitalists, right? Yeah, like yeah. like yeah. <laughs> she had capital, and he was managing this capital for her, and uh, and his first believers. They were also merchants or capitalists, so. And they, the Islamic uh, message was that uh, people should be, you know, equal. There should be only one God, and not this caste system. The caste system, you know, for example, in India, was one of the main uh, obstacles of uh, trade and and capitalism you know, and development of, of, of the society. You know, the trade, the Arab traders were very active in India and in China, even before Islam, because they were, uh, because they were traders, they did not have this, this problem. And Islam, I think, um, was so successful because uh, it emphasized, you know, the, the, the free access to capital and, and to, to making business for everyone. You know, we're talking yeah. about Khadija, it's a woman and she had capital. Mm -hmm. You have to understand this because you know it's not really uh, something that is uh, 
um, it comes naturally, you know. Uh, yeah. Businesses, there were there were a lot of uh, you know restrictions on who can make business and who has capital, etc. Who's allowed to do it? Which caste is allowed to do that? Which caste is not allowed? Islam, you know, um, removed all these uh, obstacles for people, and people saw that that freedom is uh, uh, is something essential in Islam, and uh, they, and that's why you know Islam is very much associated with. Uh, with trade in Indonesia and traders and uh, who had, it's not that they had, we always learn <laughs> in school uh, that, yeah, the Islam, uh, that traders were so good people mm-hmm. and they, uh, and the, the Muslim traders were so good. And so that, that's why people of Indonesia, for example, became Muslim. In right, right. Not only that, but it's, uh, I think the m- most important that thing is that people saw that the system works, you know, the system of trade and capitalism works. So, so they, the religion makes sense. So, and is is complete compatible with the with this prosperity that the, the Muslims bring with them. So, and and I'd I'd also say it even fits in very well with the institution of zakat. I mean, you know. A lot of Muslims kind of believe that, like, you know, you you need the government to step in and kind of regulate the unfettered market and not allow people to freely trade with each other. And, you know, because of this intervention, then, you know, you, you'll you'll have more, you know, you, you, you'll have poor people that are helped more. But really, if you stop to take, if you stop and take take a look at it from the outside and see that actually you, you kind of need the the relatively free flow of capital and people accumulating capital and people accumulating savings in order to have a functioning institution of zakat to begin with if you're constantly like intervening in the market and stopping people from doing trade and business people end up getting poorer people end up having less savings and there's less zakat to give so like really like what you said about the prosperity of you know of the 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 arab merchants and traders during the time of prophet muhammad sallallahu because like you know they were they were prosperous because they uh, markets were allowed to work freely and fairly and because of that you had people that had savings and then you know if you're a muslim if you have a lot of wealth you know that you're going to get more reward if you give it away to people that are in need so like then you have all of these other institutions like walks that end up getting established to to kind of help the the poor people and help you know get the reward from allah eventually Yeah, exactly. And this is very important because um, uh, there is a very well-known and very well-documented tradition in uh, Islamic history about, you know, the faqis, the, 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 you know, the scholars of, of Sharia. They, most of them had their own business. They were, they had, they had like a side job as the, you know, traders, you know, this was very important. And actually, there is a very important study about this issue that tries to analyze why the why Islamic thought, you know, found its peak in a certain time, in the and then after the Abbasids it declined, and the, and what what he what the scholar said is, or what the study said is that the the fact that uh, Islamic scholars had their own money and their own waqfs and their own, uh, you know, 
sources of income <laughs> decentralized way um, was very important element in the diversity diversity of uh, Islamic uh, schools and the diversity you know created a very uh, healthy uh, uh, you know intellectual atmosphere you know diversity of ideas we, uh, you had you know we didn't have only four schools of thought in Islam we had hundreds you know and he says that uh, after uh, the in in the time of the Abbasids, who uh, where the government or where the caliph started to invest heavily in uh, intellectual uh, and cultural aspects of of, of Islamic thought, uh, this was the main. We always think that like the Abbasids, they this the golden era, you know. The caliphs were, you know, paying for uh, libraries and for putting so much, they're investing so much in, in, in Islamic thought, you know. Mm -hmm. And he says, actually, this is the, the reason why it declined, mm -hmm. because the funding was coming from the state and the state started to want to shape the, you know, the thought in one way or another. You know, the Abbasids had first the Mu'tazilit ideology and then they had the opposite, but um, doesn't make any difference, Mu'tazilit or not. But the idea is that the 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 thought was uh, funded in a central way. You know, the the the, the, the funding was central, and this started to make to to uh, you know lessen the diversity in the. Islamic thought. So people who are, who are thinking, am I saying this? Is it uh, in line with the government or not? Hmm. This is uh, like a real problem. It's, it, it does. It does. It, not about the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It, it does kind of distort the incentives, I guess. If 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 you're trying to produce or produce scholarship, you know, if if it's funded by by the government, then you kind of have that misaligned incentive because you're more. You're more than likely to kind of say things that are more in line with what the government is thinking. But I guess, you know, when you have a decentralized way of, of I guess, Islamic scholarship, then uh, um, you're, you're, you're more likely to get at what the, what, what the truth is, I guess. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Decentralization, you know, it started back then and it only intensified with, the, with time, you know. Mm -hmm. The, the contact with the West did not, uh, you know, change this. Just statism all the way from <laughs> the Abbasids to today. Statism, and that's why maybe Muslims, you know, when they think about money today, they, they, they think about the state. They don't realize that it can be done differently. Yeah, and that's, that, that's exactly what I was even complaining about that on, on Twitter the other day is that like, a lot of Muslims will tend to dismiss something like Bitcoin because it's not issued by a state. So clearly it's not in line with Islam because it needs to be issued by the state. The state needs to handle the money, it needs to handle the economy. And it's kind of unfortunate that a lot of Muslims can't even think past that. Actually, the, the central planning of money is a very recent phenomenon. It's 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 it, Historically, it's been 
that's been not that's that's been done outside of the state. It's not that like we started using gold and silver because the state started using it. Yeah. We were using it before the state became interested in it. <laughs> you know, the really astonishing thing is when you read any uh, story in Quran about any you know, former prophet or, or, or any <clears throat> group of people, Ahl uh, al-Kahf uh, story, you know, the stories of Moses. It's all, all, all of them are stories of people who were against the state. They were rebelling, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, this is a, such a stark contrast to the way of our of thinking of Muslims today. You know. Yeah. Actually, Tawhid, yeah, is 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 about that the Muslim um, only prays to God and doesn't pray to to any other entity and uh, what is these other entities these, these are like the state really this is this is like <laughs> it was pharaoh and then in, in egypt it was uh, <clears throat> established you know uh, forces that do uh, you know changing the narrative and manipulating people these are the like. This is the shirk, you know. To believe in these people. Yeah, it's hard because like it's hard to see that sometimes because you know it doesn't happen instantly. So like you know what what happens is that a government might institute a certain central planning policy, and then it has some other unintended consequences where you need more central planning to correct those unintended consequences. So you have more and more involvement in the state, especially particularly in in the market. And what happens is that you have people that are more and more they get more and more reliant on the state and as muslims that's kind of conflicting with with our religion like you said with with like tawhid and that you know our worship and reliance should only be on allah but yeah. you know at at the same time a lot of muslims actions tend to be more toward relying and you know almost worshiping of of the state and to me that that's that's very conflicting with the idea of Islam and Tawheed, where you're only supposed to rely on Allah as much as possible and only on Allah and not rely on other man-made institutions for your well-being because Allah is the only one that provides. It's not it's not the state that provides. Yeah. yeah. And it's very interesting what you say because when uh, the prophets in, in the Quran were you know talking to their communities. They were always saying, "Don't you know, rely on something that doesn't benefit you." Usually, the the aslam or or any anything that they were relying on on it on did not actually benefit them. They don't give them any benefit, and they don't they cannot actually do them any harm. So you know the these the phrases that talk about uh, uh, about uh, aslam, for example, mm -hmm. and. When you think about it, actually, it's, today we have these papers. These are like the mini Islams, right? Mm -hmm. These uh, uh, idols. Fiat country, yeah, idols. Yeah, yeah. The, the fiat currency. Yeah. It's just a paper, but you worship, you worship. And you would think that it has an intrinsic value. It, has, yeah. it will benefit you. To, when you. When you don't use it, you will have uh, bad consequences. While actually, when you don't use it, yeah, if we started just, let's say there's no Bitcoin, we just start to use this gold and silver mm -hmm. between us merchants and customers, and we will have, we will benefit. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. we, we, we will uh, save our our money from being deflated, and no one can you know actually uh, do us any harm if we use, if we use. But but there's the thought like so manipulated that people are afraid of having gold even at home or or, or you know changing these these useless papers into into gold. Not alone Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It does seem like there's this kind of fear that a lot of Muslims have of kind of like moving away from fiat currency because, you know, that, like like you said, they, they, they kind of see is that money comes from the state. And the reason why we all use money is because the state says it's money. And yeah. it's it, I think there's, there's just a lot of uh, misaligned incentives that cause Muslims to kind of think that way and not even realize that, you know, they're, they're, they're engaged in haram because as we all know, you know, fiat currency is completely entrenched and involved in riba in every aspect, and it's in it's in the creation of dollars and the distribution of dollars. It's it's all just riba involved in it, and you know, it is it is kind of sad, I guess, because you know a lot of Muslims don't even know that they're enslaved to fiat. And you know, if if you think about, you know, like if 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 you were if you know, I feel like it's kind of planned by the shaitan in that way, and that like. You know, if if the shaitan's goal is to divert everybody away from the worshiping of worshiping and reliance on Allah, and mm -hmm. to shift them to the worshiping and reliance on the state, fiat currency mm -hmm. is an excellent tool to get that to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can get everyone to have their purchasing power uh, debased and have their capital stripped, you know, eventually have people that have increased time preference. So they're 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 only thinking about the short term, and if they're only thinking about the short term, they're not thinking about their akhirah, and if they're not thinking about the akhirah, they're not they're not thinking about Allah. So it's, it's kind of like this cycle that just kind of gets uh, perpetuated, and it's really hard to get Muslims to kind of think outside of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the Muslim scholars, uh, most of them, did not play a role in you know enlightening people about what what. Riba and what's what's the system of economy uh, in Islam? <clears throat> I remember as a child, I always uh, had you know scholars and try to understand this. Why is riba forbidden? And the answers that that I was getting were, were very poor. You know, mm -hmm. very, very, so, I mean, now we understand it more. You know, through. Austrian economics or through Bitcoin, gold, <laughs> we understand that why this makes us poorer. Why why did the Quran say that riba makes people poorer? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and why the uh, the reliance on on someone on, on, on more, more the non-reliance on God, you know, and reliance on fake. Uh, and fiat uh, uh, idols uh, leads to to uh, to a poor life. Mm. Uh, now we understand it in a better way, and we should, you know, yeah. simulate these ideas more and more. People should have a better life, and the path for better life is is in their hands. You know, in the Quran, they hear, they read it every day, they, and it gives you the path. But it's not like the path that we thought about. Before. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I don't even think the scholars or even 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 the Sahaba back then could have imagined a kind of system that we live in today because I imagine if 
you know, if one of the Sahaba were alive today to kind of witness the system that we're in, I think they would just be completely and utterly shocked at the the, the prevalence of of riba in everything that that we do, and 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 it's it's quite it's quite scary when you look at it that way. But like you said, I mean, as as Muslims, I, I think it's. Uh, it's a requirement for us to look for other alternatives. And I think it's one of the most pressing issues of our times. And, you know, I, I think, I think this is to me where Bitcoin fits in very perfectly within a, an Islamic framework for how we do, how, 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 how we participate in an economy. How would you, how would you summarize how Bitcoin fits in with, with, with Islam? You know, Bitcoin, it, it demystifies the, the, the concept of uh, of Islamic uh, economy for us, you know, uh, when we were, were raised up and uh, taught about Islam, we were hearing yeah, that if you use uh, riba or the God will, you know, punish you. You have a bad life and do not be good for you. But uh, uh, Bitcoin and Asian economy demystifies this. You know, mm. it shows you why exactly when you use riba and use something else than gold standard or scarce currency, you will you will become poorer. Mm. So, so it's it, it it fits perfectly. It's uh, it should be. You know, adopted as as the main uh, pillar <laughs> of Islam, <laughs> of Islamic conduct to 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 refuse you know the fake money and state issued money. Uh, the, so this is uh, something that uh, will benefit you know the, the the community, the Islamic communities everywhere. It will um, decentralize their their conduct, they they will they will be independent from you know states and from uh, forces that you know like Zionism that that you know control banking etc. So mm-hmm. it's so important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Level, yeah. 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 I mean, I, that's that, that's kind of how I view Bitcoin fitting in with. With Islam is that I feel like it realigns a lot of the the uh, the disincentives or the the incentives caused by fiat, where you know you have this all of the central planning by governments and their main tool is to control the money. So like you know one of the biggest reasons that you know Zionism is successful is because of fiat, and you know I feel like the way that Bitcoin kind of manifests itself is that it will eliminate fiat. It will eliminate the need for governments to central centrally plan because they won't be able to have control over the money supply they won't be able to manipulate interest rates they won't be able to to, to get people in entire nations enslaved into debt and i think that that alone is a very good reason to kind of pursue a bitcoin standard because it kind of aligns with our with with an islamic economic system because it's yeah. not based on on debt it has a fixed money supply which again that's can have you can have an economy that that thrives on a fixed money supply you don't need the money supply to constantly expand and you certainly don't need the money supply to be centrally planned in any way because that's that's a very recent phenomenon that's has not been working out and i think just the fact that 
you know, Bitcoin kind of lends itself to being anti-riba also makes for a very good case that Muslims should at least look into it, study it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think we, uh, at some point, we, we uh, will understand it in a very good way in, in, in our countries. And not only in, in Islamic countries, but also in the global south. Because every child in the global south knows that, uh, that colonialism was a bad thing and it was slaving people, etc. And uh, but they, every child also knows that after we got rid of colonialism, we are uh, still colonized in a in an economic way. Mm-hmm. So people know know about that. They know that the, there are international forces that control us in in, in monetary uh, level and. Um, so people, people have the, the like the, the infrastructure to understand uh, what's going on. But it, this link, it's a very uh, simple link actually. You know, to to understand money and to link to link that to gold or to to Bitcoin. I think when it when it clicks, then then many things change in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, it kind of opens up a rabbit hole to go down where yeah. you're constantly studying and you're constantly wanting to learn more yeah. and do uh, we are prepared in the, to understand it more yeah. than other more than other communities you know mm-hmm. like the germans here it's very complicated for them to understand because they had this such a strong belief in european union or the german state etc but it's also beginning to change yeah, it's also but we we should be the first that understand it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it has not been going that way. But you know, inshallah, we're 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 making efforts to to try to yeah. try to change try to change people's minds. Inshallah. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to thank you, Bashad, for coming on the show. I love having these kinds of conversations, talking to other Muslims, especially about these topics. And where 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 can people find you online? Well, uh, Twitter um, called the, their Freedom Machine, and my website is also called thefreedommachine.org. Okay. It's yep. in the, under construction, but it uh, could be useful. There are some useful things there. Okay, I'll it. I'll I'll put that in the show notes for sure. So, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, Bashar. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure.